Hello, I'm Donald Robertson, and this is the Stoicism Philosophy as a Way of Life podcast. Today's guest is Massimo Pellucci, Professor of Philosophy at the City College of New York, uh, also part of the team responsible for the Modern Stoicism organization. Massimo is the author of several magnificent books on philosophy, including How to Be a Stoic, and more recently, The Quest for Character, what the story of Socrates and Alcibiades teaches us about our search for good leaders. Massimo, welcome to the show. How are you today? It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm in Montreal right now. Am I right in assuming that you're in New York? Yes, Brooklyn, New York. Cool, cool. Well, let's dive right in and we'll start with a little bit more background um, to introduce you to, to all of the listeners. How did you first get into philosophy? Let's go way back to the beginning. How did you first get into philosophy? <laughs> well, the beginning actually goes back to high school. You know, I, I grew up in Italy, in Rome. And um, in, I, in high school, I had to take three years of philosophy. And the teacher was just fabulous. She awesome. just made the, the, you know, the subject come alive. I really got into it. Now, at university, I had already decided to pursue a career in science. You know, was a, uh, in evolutionary biology, to be specific. And mm-hmm. that's what I did. I stuck with it. But philosophy had kind of become a background thing, especially, of course, at the time, philosophy of science. But I was just reading uh, whatever would come, come across in, 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 a, in a bookstore. And so it kind of kept being a sort of a background thing. You know, yes, I'm, I'm a scientist. I'm doing, you know, experimental stuff. I'm, I was working on uh, nature and nurture issues and stuff like that. But I was also reading philosophy. And then at some point, uh, you know, midlife crisis comes. And uh, here I am, a fairly successful biologist. I, my research funded, uh, my postdocs, my graduate students, everything is going fine. I have tenure in a university. But then I start thinking, okay, but do I want to keep doing this for the next, you know, 20, 30 years or whatever it is? And mm. the answer was, nah, not, not really. Now, at that point, fate intervened, so to speak, um, with hindsight at least. So I was at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. And um, the university there, the philosophy department there, hired a brilliant young philosopher of science, Jonathan Kaplan, who had just defended his thesis, at uh, his PhD thesis at Stanford. And Jonathan looked me up as soon as he came to campus because his thesis was on topics very similar to the ones that I was working on, but I was working at it as a biologist. He was working at it, uh, on it as a philosopher of science. So he looked me up. We started. We had coffee. We started coming to my lab meetings. We ate it off. We became friends. We started publishing stuff together, you know, co-authoring mm-hmm. papers. And one thing led to another. And one day we were having lunch and I said, Jonathan, how about this? I've been looking for something different to do for the rest of my career. How about I go back to school, get my PhD in philosophy and you be my advisor? And I still remember he was looking, he looked at me and he said, how many glasses of wine did you have today? Uh, because he was a junior faculty, right? Without tenure and all that sort of stuff. And I was a tenure professor, full, full professor. Uh, I said, yeah, I don't drink at lunch usually. So, so it, you know, we started exploring the idea and that's, that's what we did for, for three years. I went back to school and I studied philosophy really seriously for the second time, I guess, after the high school bout. Mm-hmm. Um, and then eventually that led to a, an actual change in career. Initially, that wasn't the idea. The idea was just to expand my interests. But uh, a few years later, I moved to New York mm-hmm. and I started applying for jobs in the area. And the first one I came out was at uh, City University of New York and it was in philosophy. And here, here I am. 
And how did you get into Stoicism? Do you want to tell us a little bit about that story? Well, that was in part, uh, part of the same story in a sense, kind of a continuation of the same story. When I mentioned that I was going through a midlife crisis, it wasn't mm -hmm. just a matter of career. It was also a kind of a life thing. Uh, you know, nothing particularly unusual, but a couple of things, two or three things happened in the same year, actually, in a span of few months, an unexpected divorce, for one thing, mm -hmm. uh, my father dying. And, you know, it's like, so, okay, how do I deal with this stuff? And since I grew up, I, I grown up in Rome, uh, which means that by, by default, I was, I consider myself early on in my life, a, a Roman Catholic, mm -hmm. but I left the church, you know, when I was in high school. And after that, I considered myself a secular humanist. So I thought, okay, well, here's the time to put secular humanism to the test. You know, what, what kind of tools, what kind of resources does secular humanism have to help me deal with these kinds of life events, divorce, dying, you know, relatives and stuff like that. And it turned out the answer was not much. Mm. Uh, secular humanism is, a, is a, a great philosophy story in theory. Um, you know, I, it's all about following reason and science and, you know, human rights and all that sort of injustice. Yes, that's all very nice. But when it comes to personal issues, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. I couldn't find an answer. But so I thought, okay, but I am now studying philosophy seriously. Surely there is an answer somewhere. And so I kind of started to explore some practical philosophy systematically. My first stop was actually Buddhism because a number of my friends told me, hey, you know, we, you really should look into Buddhism. And I did. And I found a lot of interesting things, some of which were definitely practical. But it, it just didn't, the language just didn't click with me, probably for cultural reasons. It was, you know, too alien, too distant from, from me. And also, I couldn't get past some of the metaphysics, which just didn't sit well with me as a, as a scientist. And then pretty quickly, I figured, okay, the answer has got to come from virtual ethics. Mm -hmm. So I studied, you know, the obvious place, Aristotle. Yep, great ideas, but what the hell is the practice? Um, and so it's like, okay, that's interesting, but no. Then I went to Epicureanism. And Epicureanism also was kind of very interesting. It was actually much more practical. It kind of resonated. A lot of things resonated with me, you know, not being afraid of death and not being afraid of the gods, emphasis on friendship and a simple life. All of that sounded good. But then I got to the part where, oh, no social and political involvement because that brings pain. And I thought, well, that's right. It does bring pain. But, you know, I can't see myself living a life without that sort of uh, component to it. And then uh, that, that is the time where I rediscovered Stoicism online, one of the resources from the modern Stoicism uh, group. And I thought, Stoicism, wait a minute. That's right. That's Marcus Aurelius. I had read mm. the meditations when I was in college. And I thought, oh, Seneca. I had translated Seneca from Latin when I was in high school. And I said, but I never actually put them together. You know, I never actually thought, oh, this is about a coherent philosophy of life. So that yeah. picked my, my attention. And uh, it just happened that the first thing that I read uh, was um, Epictetus' Discourses. And that immediately clicked, immediately yeah. hooked me. And here we are. You know, that's a strangely common path, I think, that a lot of people go through, that they'll say they'd kind of come across Seneca and they'd kind of come across Marcus Aurelius, but they hadn't really connected it to Stoic philosophy in yeah. general. You know, people say, oh, yeah, I discovered Stoicism, but I, I'd sort of vaguely remember looking at Marcus and Seneca years ago. 
it's interesting. Um, I think it's only recently people have started to talk more about Stoicism, you know, whereas in the past they would just talk about Seneca or they, yep. you know, they talk about Cicero or they talk about Max Aurelius, but not really about the philosophy itself. Well, and then you, you wrote How to Be a Stoic. What do you think you... I know that when you wrote that book, you were still kind of exploring stoicism it was a bit right. it was kind of an experiment for you in a way like uh, in the laboratory of your own experience as it were so what do you think you learned from the process of writing that book were you changed by the end of it like what what emerged from your experience of working on the book yeah it, th- that was an interesting experience uh, i was um on sabbatical and that was my my project for the year i moved to Rome for part of that year just to get inspiration, basically. Uh, and then I actually started traveling, tracking down many of the places where Epictetus was. I went to mm-hmm. uh, Hierapolis, uh, you know, in modern Western Turkey. I went um, to uh, Nicopolis in modern Western Greece. And um, uh, yes, it was definitely a, a transformative experience, as I think Running a book ought to be, really, right? Uh, I mean, you, you've had probably very similar experiences uh, yourself. I mean, the, the thing is, uh, people say sometimes that uh, the, the best way to learn something is either to teach it to people yeah. or to write a book about it, right? Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And in fact, the, the re- ever since I started writing books, uh, usually my approach is I'm going to write a book that I would have loved to have read a few yeah. years ago when I didn't know crap about this stuff. Yeah, you know, that's what I've tried to do as well. You know, I kind of I kind of think if I could go back in time, yep. you know, what would I want to read? You know, I kind of exactly. uh, and exactly. cross your fingers and hope that other people are going to want to read that as well. But it's not, <laughs> it's not a bad strategy. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's, it's actually, I mean, it worked, it certainly worked for me. And, yeah. um, and the book uh, turned out to be an interesting sort of, hypothetical conversation with with Epictetus where I went into some personal uh, experiences and I asked my Epictetus, you know, how would you deal with this kind of stuff? And sometimes, uh-huh. often I agree with Epictetus. In a few cases, I disagree. Like there is a uh-huh. chapter, for instance, in, the, in How to Be a Stoic where uh, we talk, I talk to Epictetus uh, a little bit about uh, his view of the cosmos and, and you know, uh-huh. the harmony of the cosmos. And basically, the Stoics just like, Plato and 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 others yeah. uh, essentially subscribed to what we would today uh, call a design argument for to, to infer yeah. that the world you know is is organized by some kind of intelligence, yeah. right? They love the argument from design, exactly. Yeah. And I said, and I told Epictetus, sort of my, my hypothetical Epictetus, I said, you know, if I had lived two thousand years ago, I would have wholeheartedly agree. I, I yeah. think you're, you, you, you got it right. But, you know, today, modern science, I mean, we got other things. You know, have you ever heard of these evolution stuff and, yeah, and so on? Darwin and stuff like that. Yeah. Like, right. And there's things in Epic. I love Epictetus, but there's, there's definitely some crazy bits. Like, yes. I think, if I remember rightly, there's a bit in Epictetus where he talks about how austerity is good for your health because you don't, you, you know, you see lots of elderly beggars or something like that and it seems like a crazy argument <laughs> like yes <laughs> not exactly the best argument right i mean but that's part of the thing right so so w- when i write about the greeks and, and the romans 
often people ask the obvious question, which I think is perfectly legitimate, which is why should we be paying attention to people who lived two or two and a half millennia ago? You know, what do they have to say uh, interest, that is interesting to us? Sure, surely a lot of this stuff has been superseded. Mm-hmm. And my answer is, well, look, if let's say that Socrates all of a sudden got into, joined us in this conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the first thing he would do, it would be really surprised at the technology that we're using, right? Like, whoa, my gosh, this, this yeah. laptop thing you're talking about, it allows you to talk you know, thousands of miles away. It's like, what the hell? He would definitely be surprised because, of course, our science and technology have advanced in ways that the Greco-Romans would have not been able to imagine. But then Socrates would sit down and listen to what you and I are actually talking about and say, oh, yeah, I recognize this stuff. I know, I know the the general topic. I know what you're yeah. talking about. You're talking about suffering. You're talking about dealing with setbacks. You're talking. That stuff has not changed. Yeah. And so that is why I find not just the Greco-Romans, but you know, you can say the same for Eastern uh, cultures. You know, for Buddhism, Taoism, and so on and so forth, or from from other places in the world. But that is what is very valuable about these people. We shouldn't focus on the stuff that they got wrong, because of course everybody gets stuff wrong. <laughs> Uh, you know, you and I have written books, and who knows, 10 years, 20 years, 100 years down the road, assuming that anybody's actually going to read my books that far in the, in, in the future, they'll look at it and say, wow, this guy really got sev- several things spectacularly wrong. Yeah. But that isn't the point. The point is, what did they get right that early on when there was no, no science to speak of, when there was no systematic yeah. research into human psychology and happiness? And yet they got a lot of stuff right, which is still resonates with us today. I, I can think of two two reasons for that off the top of my head. One is that there's quite a lot of stuff you can figure out about psychology through reflection. Not By no means everything. There's a lot of things that are really difficult to figure out by reflection. But you can definitely arrive at a lot of insights through personal reflection. And they, they spent a lot of time doing that. And I, I would compare it to actually the level of sophistication that they have in rhetoric and oratory. So we can look back yeah. at Greek and Roman oratory and think it's still pretty impressive. Like they have a really impressive technical knowledge of how to form uh, compelling speeches because they were able to practice. They don't need a microscope to do that. You know, they, they can practice it and observe how audiences respond. So they were pretty advanced in that regard. Um, so perhaps it shouldn't surprise us so much if they're, they made a lot of progress countering rhetoric as well, um, and as well as evoking passions in people they were able to to manage their passions. And you know the other reason, you maybe you'll like this one as well, because I know you've got you've got an interest in pseudoscience. Yes. I think one of the reasons that we look back at the Stoics, and I am genuinely humbled and kind of impressed sometimes by how advanced bits of Stoicism are psychologically. They're way way more advanced than a, a, in certain regards than a lot of the contemporary self-help literature, it seems yep. to me. And I think one reason for that is Freud, because Freud was so bad <laughs> for <right. laughs> the development of psychotherapy. Freud was, was a guy who wrote quite extensively about his love of science, but essentially was a massive pseudoscientist and pretty anti-science fundamentally. He held back the progress of scientific research and psychotherapy by at least half a century. And, <laughs> I would agree. Know, yeah. Um, I would agree. Yeah, that, that whole chunk of psychotherapy, uh, you know, Freud, Jung, Adler, all these people, is like, yeah, they really went 
they took the wrong turn <laughs> and they, they set back wrong by turn. decades. Yeah. 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 And you know, the funny thing is we would have been into stoicism 50 years earlier if it hadn't been for Freud, because there were early, late 19th century, early 20th century psychotherapists that were really into Seneca, like, but they were eclipsed by Freud and, uh, and his uh, Oedipus complex theory so much so that they're completely forgotten about now. But if that had never happened, you know, stoicism would have got into psychotherapy about 50 years earlier, and it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't seem as much of a, a revelation to us today. We would we'd be, it would be more part of our culture, I think. <laughs> That's right. I wanted to ask you, did you think that you've, have you changed your mind about any aspects of stoicism since you, you worked on that book and since you began, uh, you know, writing other books? Like, has your view of stoicism evolved more recently? Yeah, I think that's that's inevitable to some extent, right? The, w- once you start getting into the the nitty gritty details, and and you also start comparing uh, Stoicism to other philosophies, not just again Greco Romans, but more widely, you say, okay, well, these these people got a lot of stuff right. In fact, I still fundamentally consider myself a Stoic, but there are some things they didn't get right. Uh, some of them are pretty obvious, like. Um, uh, Cicero's criticism, for instance, of the Stoic endorsement of divination techniques yeah. uh, is is pretty right on target. As you, you mentioned, my interest in pseudoscience, Cicero is considered the first author in the Western canon, basically, to address systematically an issue of pseudoscience. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he writes about divination, astrology, and stuff like that. Yeah. So they got that stuff wrong. But that's not very um, worrisome, I think. You know, that really falls into under the science part of things. And so it's not very surprising that they they got something wrong. Yeah. I think that the more important part, uh, at least for me, is that Stoicism does seem to to lack a either awareness or at least a taking seriously of structural problems as opposed to personal ones. Right. So mm-hmm. so when it comes to ethics, there are these two ways of looking at things that uh, either the personal level, so what is up to me and what is not up to me, uh, you know, given the the background conditions that I'm experiencing, you know, what can I do here? And that's obviously very powerful and very helpful. Mm-hmm. But then there is also the structural level, like, okay, but but if I live in a dictatorship, for instance, or if I am experiencing a horrible job conditions because my boss takes advantage of me or something like that, well, those are structural issues. Those are not yeah. just dependent on me. And so they need to be addressed at a more collective level, at a more societal yeah. level. So this just doesn't have that. To be fair, not many philosophies yeah. uh, have that, right? Buddhism it, doesn't have it either. That's true. And it may also be that they said a bit more about it yes. in books that don't survive today. Because there was a tradition, we believe, of Stoic experts in jurisprudence who may have had more to say about reforming the Roman legal system, for example, and uh, rights and so on. But we, you know, we we only have a small fraction of what exactly. the Stoics wrote. We can kind of guess exactly. that you're what survives right. is important to them, but they, they must have said some other things that we've lost. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, there is some discussion in the in, in sort of the, the scholarly literature, for instance, um, what's his name? Sadly, uh, has published a couple of papers arguing how, that yes, despite the caveat, the big caveat that you just put forth, which is <laughs> we've lost a lot of what the Stoics wrote, it does seem that, that there is really 
something inherent in the philosophy um, about, well, you know, the background, the, the, the government you live under is a preferred or dispreferred and different, that sort of stuff. But you're right. It's, it's always a good idea to keep in mind that we have lost a lot. But, but, but some of our concerns, right, both yours and mine, is to bring Stoicism up yeah. to the 21st century. And so regardless of whether the ancient Stoics did concern themselves or not, we certainly should. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's where there is some work to be done, I think. Absolutely, definitely. Actually, to going back a bit, I was going to ask you, I'm just curious, did your kind of concern, maybe is the right word, about pseudoscience, do you think your concern about pseudoscience was one of the things that motivated your interest in philosophy? Yes, it was, because um, my first entry in philosophy, uh, you know, later after my high school bout uh, as an adult was in philosophy of science. Because, yeah. For obvious reasons, because I was a scientist, but specifically, what is now actually called there is a sub branch now of philosophy of science that is referred to as philosophy of pseudoscience, yeah. because I've always been interested in these, in what philosophers call the demarcation problem. What exactly separates science from pseudoscience? Why is it that certain epistemic activities, as they're referred to, uh, seems to be so successful and others are just don't go anywhere? And why do yeah. people believe things in you know one way or another? That sort of so that has always been one of my interests and that yes that was one of my entry points in the philosophy that's something maybe you have in common with socrates arguably <laughs> in a sense because he started studying natural philosophy originally mm-hmm. allegedly under anaxagoras and then got right. kind of frustrated with it and yep. began to question the, the whole methodology but also the way that socrates reacts to the the sophists you could say he's the type of guy and other early philosophers saw sophistry and thought I'm kind of done with other people's BS. Like, I, I need to, I need to start doing philosophy just to kind of get past, cut, cut through all of the smokescreen of, of rhetoric. Right. And I, I think today people get fed up with the BS of kind of political rhetoric and pseudoscience, and it's one of the things. Frustration with other people's BS is one of the things that drives people to study philosophy more deeply, perhaps. I, I agree. Yeah, I agree. And in fact, uh, you mentioned, so I mentioned a minute ago that Cicero is the first one who started writing systematically about pseudoscience. But Socrates, actually, there's a bit in the Carmides where he does bring up the, the issue. He doesn't go into details. But, it, but at some point uh, in the Carmides by Plato, Socrates raises the question of what is the difference between a real doctor and a quack? Mm-hmm. And and he says, you know, would the wise man be able to tell the difference? And there's this nice little dialogue where at some point he says, no, the wise man won't be able to tell the difference because he has to be not only wise, but also a doctor. In other words, if he doesn't have expertise, then he won't be able to tell bullshit yeah. from, from, real, from the real thing. And it, it's, it's a really interesting, it's a really compelling uh, sort of statement there that uh, it's surprising in that early on in the history of Western thought. Yeah, it's always been all right. People have always been concerned about being led down the garden path by <laughs> yep. fake experts, right? Exactly. Um, I want to get dig a little bit into your uh, your more recent book, The Quest for Character. But before we get on to that, I just wanted to ask you briefly about your involvement with the Modern Stoicism team. And particularly, what do you make in general of the modern resurgence of interest in Stoicism? Like, why are people suddenly, it's been, it's been like over a decade now, or, you know, pushing 20 years, but why are, are people now much more interested in Stoicism than they were in the past? 
Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question, which I've been uh, asking myself a number of times. And I have some some suggestions, but I think that what really would be interesting is, is if a PhD student in sociology or social psychology would actually sit down and do a thesis on this thing, yeah. because there is, there is quite a bit to be done there. I suspect that the resurgence of stoicism is the result over the last you know, 10, 20 years, is the result of a number of factors. One of them is the receding of classical religions. You know, uh, a lot of people, not only in the United States, but you know, certainly across Western countries, in fact, more so in other Western countries than in the United States, over the last 10, 20, 30 years, have um, begun to disassociate themselves from, from standard you know, mainstream religions. But even if you do, which doesn't mean that they turn into atheism, it just means that they don't find uh, you know, good answers, satisfying answers in mainstream religion. But once you do that, you still need an answer to your questions. You still yeah. need a framework. You need, still need something to go on, just like it happened with me uh, and secular humanism. And uh, so I suspect that that is one reason, uh, obviously, for the resurgence not only of Stoicism, but also for Western interest in Buddhism, for instance, or, or, or even in other Eastern philosophies like Taoism and, to a lesser extent, Confucianism. That's one reason. The other reason is we are living in a time that is, in some respects, not very different from the kind of turmoil, social and political turmoil that characterized the explosion of the Hellenistic philosophies mm-hmm. in the Western world, as well as, in fact, about a century or so earlier uh, in India, the origin of Buddhism, and about at the same time in China, the origin of Confucianism. That is, we live in a world where things change very rapidly. There are major challenges that we individually have very little say about. We can very do things very do very thing, few things about, like you know, climate change, for instance. We just went through a pandemic, uh, wars political turmoil, all of that sort of stuff is the sort of thing that makes you... Of course, let's also not forget the last century we went through two world wars. So um, those are the kinds of things that really generate anxiety and existential anxiety. And so I think that stoicism is certainly one very good way of doing so, uh, of responding to that kind of need. But also there are, I guess, more pragmatic kinds of reasons. Like you know, the very fact that there is a dedicated group of people like you guys when you study the modern stoicism group, I mean, that's sometimes that's all it takes for people to rediscover things. And, you know, it's somebody's initiative. Somebody says, hey, more people should know about this. Let's get together and, and get it done. I mean, you know, um, nobody's, as far as I know, has organized the Stoicon or Stoic Week equivalent for yeah. you know epicureanism or or, or skepticism or anything was, like that i was right? going to ask about that why what you know when we first start met with john sells and christopher gill and, and jules evans and, and everybody and we started planning the kind of initial stoic week i wholeheartedly assumed that within a year or two there would be epicurus week and <laughs> right. aristotle week and that they you know the, the all of these things would flourish and then Whatever it is now, like ten years later, I'm still waiting. Like, and I thought, why isn't there? Why isn't there a, a, an Epicurean movement? Mm-hmm. There are Epicurean communities, but they're pretty small compared yeah. to the Stoicism communities online. There's been attempts to publish modern self-help books on Epicurus and Aristotle, mm-hmm. but they haven't really 
taken off in the way stoicism is everywhere. Like uh, it's taken over in podcasts and online articles in a way that those other uh, branches of ancient philosophy haven't. Now, I'm curious what your thoughts are. I mean, I can understand why there isn't a cynicism week. Right? I, <laughs> That's right. I thought live, live like Diogenes, I thought is going to be pretty niche. But yes. <laughs> why not Epicureanism and skepticism? Oh, that would definitely be entertaining. A cynic week would definitely be entertaining. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And again, I can only guess here. I think that the the answer is going to be different for different philosophies. For Aristotle, for instance, he's just not practical. You know, it's great, great stuff in theory, but it doesn't really seem to pay much attention to how do you actually translate this into into techniques, into uh, into ascases, into uh, you know ex- exercises and stuff like that. It's, it's just not not practical. Also, frankly, Aristotle, by today's standards, seems like blah. I mean, in, in like you know, what yeah. all he's saying is, well, go in the middle. You know, choose moderation. You, yeah. you, you need a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Well, sure, okay, but that's not a big revelation, right? It's not. It's not going to be. Uh, triggering the kind of aha moments that that I've had certainly when I read the Epictetus. So that's yeah. that's one thing. Epicureanism is a little bit more puzzling because yeah, you would think that Epicureanism would be a good competitor today, just as it was in fact in ancient Greece and Rome. I suspect that Epicureanism has suffered from fi- a couple of things. First of all, uh, for being from being uh, associated with uh, or labeled as as the sex, drugs, and rock and roll of philosophy, which it certainly wasn't. But today, the word Epicurean, all these words have changed meaning, right? Cynicism doesn't, cynic doesn't mean today what it meant uh, early on. Same goes for Stoic. But Epicureanism, I think, or skeptic for that matter. But Epicureanism, I think it has been the most distorted from, from the initial version so that when people hear about, oh, Epicurus, like, oh, you mean I need to go and engage in some kind of orgies and, and stuff myself? It's like, well, no, that's not it. But also, there is that issue of disengagement from political and social involvement. And I do think that we live in a society where especially young people do prize that kind of involvement. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's frustrating. Yes, it's painful. Um, but I don't see a lot of people today just saying, you know what? Let's uh, let's buy a piece of land and build our garden, fence it off, and just stay there. Not a, not a, you know, let the rest of the world go do whatever the hell they want to do. And that kind of living obscurity aspect of Epicureanism yeah. may have undermined the incentive to build online yeah. communities as well. I'd also say, from my perspective, there's a reason that Epicureanism isn't popular with modern-day psychologists and psychotherapists Mm. in in the way that Stoicism is. And that's because certain aspects of Epicureanism really clash um, with clinical practice in CBT. Ah, interesting. Um, It would take a little while to kind of explain, but we know, for instance, that people who respond strongly in the affirmative to the statement, anxiety is bad, tend to have lower emotional resilience over the long term. And belief that anxiety is bad is pretty close to the central ethical doctrine of Epicureanism, that ataraxia or freedom from disturbance and anxiety is the, is the highest good. So this kind of emphasis on the value 
and control of subjective feelings of pleasure and pain we now is now seen as highly problematic psychologically that's um, interesting and so that's there's a reason it hasn't kind of taken off and another reason i'd mention is i know epicureans might uh disagree with this but mm-hmm. let, let's take uh, the meditations of marcus Aurelius as an example i don't think the epicureans or the aristotelians or maybe you know most of these other ancient philosophies have a text comparable to the meditations in terms of its popular appeal and accessibility. I, I, I agree. And and that is certainly that's certainly part of part of the picture. Yeah. And then there is the skeptics. Now the skeptic yeah, I'm very interested in skepticism, particularly in the in the version that, that Cicero articulated, which is very friendly to Stoicism as it as it turns out. Uh, but it's not it doesn't endorse Stoicism completely. But the problem with skepticism is it's more that it's more an attitude than a philosophy of life, right? It's it's a it's an attitude about I need to keep my mind open to the fact that no matter what I think I know, I could be wrong. And that I need to consider things in terms of probabilities and not in terms of truth versus false. And I think it's a great attitude. I mean, I think this this is the kind of attitude we should all cultivate, but it doesn't really necessarily amount to a philosophy, to a full-fledged philosophy of life, which is why Cicero himself was essentially a stoic, a stoic with some modifications, you know, some variations. And I wanted to ask also about your latest book, uh, The Quest for Character, which mm-hmm. is I think uh, I'm about halfway through reading it. So it's got some stuff about the Stoics in it, but its main focus is on Socrates and also on Alcibiades. So first of all, I wanted to ask, why write about Socrates? Yeah, that's a good question. Actually, the the original idea of the book was really to write about the relationship between the two, between Socrates and Alcibiades. You know, a lot, of, as you know, a lot has been written on Socrates. I'm sure a lot more will be uh, written because he's an endlessly fascinating character. Alcibiades, on the other hand, I've always been puzzled by why is it that this guy is not yeah. better known, right? Not as a role model, because he's definitely not a role model. Um, but I'm still surprised to this day that I don't think there is a movie or a TV series on, on Alcibiades' life, which would be fascinating, right? I mean, the guy was impossibly handsome, uber-rich, of noble descent, brave, dashing. You know, he had it all. I don't think there's anything in Athens commemorating him, incidentally, Really? <laughs> yeah, see, nothing, so... <laughs> which is kind of surprising. I'll it's, tell you something it's... that might might surprise you. In the city hall in Athens, mm-hmm. um, I went to see the mayor a while back, and I, I, when I got inside and I was walking up the stairs, I noticed they had a bust of Pericles in the middle of the building, which didn't surprise me. But beside it, there's a bust of Aspasia. Really? Oh, yeah. that's good. That is yeah. that's a, that's interesting. <laughs> which which what I thought was really cool, and it kind of surprised me a bit. But I don't. As far as I'm aware, there there isn't anything uh, commemorating Alcibiades. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So the original idea was like, okay, here's these two characters. Alcibiades is a student and friend of Socrates, and he goes in in the Alcibiades Meyer, which is a dialogue attributed to Plato, although it's not clear whether Plato actually wrote it or not. But uh, no matter what it is, it, no matter what it is, an ancient dialogue written yeah. in the style of Plato. And and it's a fascinating dialogue because a very young Alcibiades goes to Socrates and says, "Look, I got all these things going for me. I think I, I need to be, you know, leading Athens. I, I want to get into politics, etc. And you know, what do you think?" And 
Socrates basically sets him down for the equivalent of what we would today call a job interview. And he says, okay, sure. So, so let's hear here. What, what, what would you be your priorities? What, you know, why would you do things, et cetera? He's kind and of giving him careers guidance. Yeah. And, and it, <laughs> it becomes very clear uh, quickly that Alcibiades just does not have what it takes because he's, he's missing the most important thing. He's, yeah. he's going into, into this uh, enterprise uh, for glory, for self-aggrandizement. He's a narcissist, but no, he's not, he doesn't really have an interest in making things better for, for, for Athens and for the people. And so there's this wonderful bit at, at some point in the dialogue where uh, Socrates says, then alas, Alcibiades, what a condition you suffer from. I hesitate to name it, but it must be said, you are wedded to stupidity, best of men, of the most extreme sort, as the argument accuses you and you accuse yourself. So this is why you're leaping into the affairs of the city before you've been educated. Now, the stupidity that Socrates is talking about is really lack of wisdom. That, uh, by the way, Alcibiades punched people in the face for less. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, he really did. <laughs> well told. So. Yes. Yeah, it was a really bizarre character. And so, you know, uh, so that kind of got me started on, uh, on this notion of, okay, so what is the relationship here, therefore, between character and wisdom on one hand and leadership uh, and on the other hand? So why is it that it's so difficult to find statesmen and politicians who actually have a good character. What is, what is so troublesome yeah. about this thing? Why, why is it we find a lot more Alcibiades than Socrates in this business? But uh, you know, that's, that was the idea. What you said raises another, I think there's another obvious question, which is what on earth then did Socrates see in Alcibiades? Because yeah. he invested a lot of time in, and he risked his reputation. Yeah. Like, um, obviously, I and uh, being associated with Alcibiades, so he must have seen some potential in him. And sometimes with the histories, actually, they're so kind of biased one way or the other. It's difficult to to understand why Socrates would have given this guy the time of day. Yeah, that is that is a good question. I mean, the the book, the Quest for Cater, has an entire chapter on Alcibiades' life, where I kind of try to disentangle all these these different threads of and it, it was complicated it, it it is true for instance that he certainly was a brilliant general there's there's no question about it i mean uh, you know the guy after he had defected first to sparta and then to the persians somehow he found his way back to athens he was welcomed back and athens by that point was really in dire straits in terms of the peloponnesian war they were basically done because this was the you know after the uh, ill-fated expedition against Syracuse, which destroyed a great part of the Athenian army and basically all of its navy. And yet Alcibiades takes control and he wins a string of victories one yeah. after another yeah. and almost tips, uh, tips uh, the, the, the balance of the war on the other side. So the guy certainly had brilliance. But you're right. It's a good question. You know, what exactly did Socrates find in, in him? And he was, definitely, he was definitely a highly charismatic orator. Yes. Yeah, absolutely, exactly. And so maybe Socrates thought that if he could de redirect sort of some of the the impulses in the right in the right direction, then then maybe this guy would actually be fulfilling his potential. But to me, the most interesting thing is, uh, which I explain in the, in the following chapter, which is about Socrates. On the other hand, most interesting thing is that you know we we tend to be used uh, we, we tend to think of Socrates as it comes across in the Platonic Dialogues, and for good reasons. So that's a major source of what we know about 
Plato. But of course, there are other sources. One of the most important one of which, as you know, is Xenophon. Yeah. In particular, the memorabilia, where, which was, of course, uh, also the book that inspired Zeno to, yeah. to get into philosophy and start Stoicism, right? But in the memorabilia, you get a far more, in my opinion at least, far more dynamic and, and interesting view of Socrates who talks to everybody about all sorts of things. So it's, it's in a sense, it's less philosophical, but yeah. more practical, right? You know, yeah. there's one of my favorite bits is where he actually enters in conversation with a, a courtesan and gives her yeah. business advice, right? Your daughter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was great. But the, the relevant, in terms of the discussion we're having, the more interesting thing in my mind is that Socrates, apparently, according to Xenophon at least, uh, explicitly saw himself as playing this role of advising people whether to get into politics or not. And he does that repeatedly. First of all, there's a bit in the, in the memorabilia where a sophist, Antiphon, actually criticized Socrates for, for not getting in politics himself. And, and Socrates' response is, well, how now, Antiphon? Should I play a more important part in politics by engaging them in them alone or by taking pains to turn out as many competent politicians as possible? That's, that's very revealing. And we have a number of examples. So he, he, basically, he advises Alcibiades not to do it. So you know, these, there is this often. Uh, often the, the, this point is is brought up. Is like, oh, look at Socrates failed with Alcibiades. Well, not exactly because he did tell him not to do it. <laughs> he told him not don't get into politics because he saw that he wasn't going to go very well. He also advises Glaucon, Plato's brother, not to get into politics. There's this really wonderful bit in the in the memorabilia where he basically does a very practical Socrates does a very practical examination of Glaucon asking him details about the Athenian garrison and um, how much grain do we get and all that sort of stuff. And at the end, he says, don't, please don't do it. And Glaucon does not do it. He becomes a musician, apparently. And then Socrates advises Carmides, who was Glaucon's son. It, and this time he says, you, you are one of those people that should get into politics. And, Glauc and Carmides does. Unfortunately for Camides, it does it, his timing is not very good because he does it during the reign of the Thirty Tyrants, so that didn't go very well. Uh, but you know his art was in the right place. And then there is yet another character, Eutydemus, who also initially thinks that he knows everything and he can get into politics. And Socrates says, "No, no, no, it's really not the kind of that kind of person." And Eutydemus, to his credit, realizes Socrates is right, and he becomes a follower of Socrates. He gives up politics. So there's this pattern. It's not just Alcibiades. Socrates really thought of himself as kind of being on the outside and advising people whether to embark in a, in a political career or not. And it's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, like historians could have hours of fun speculating about what would the outcome of the Peloponnesian War have been if Alcibiades hadn't got involved at all. Yep. <laughs> if he just, you know. And also, I was going to say, the way you're describing Socrates, it sounds a little bit like we could compare his role to somebody running a political think tank. You mm -hmm. know, he's kind of on the sidelines of politics, educating and advising. Exactly. Right? exactly. Um, the one-man think tank. The one-man <laughs> think tank, Yeah. I, I was going to ask you, actually, leading on from that that previous comment, if you have any views about this, what what do you think Alcibiades' biggest flaws were then, and uh, do you have an opinion about what his biggest mistake was? 
in practice. In practice, yeah. So his, his biggest flaw, I think, is the one that uh, Socrates points out, that is he suffers from hubris, which, of course, is hubris, yeah. the, you know, the, the, the quintessential problem for a lot of uh, mythological or historical figures in, in ancient Greece. I mean, he thinks that, uh, that he can do a lot more than he actually can. He also have over, has, however, the wrong motivations, again, as, as Socrates points out. In terms of... I was yeah, going to say, people might think this is a bit lame as an explanation, but I can't help but look at Alcibiades and think that he also possibly has some daddy issues, like, mm-hmm. because he has to live up to the example of Pericles. Yes. Or, and he, he seems to me to be a guy who's desperate to outdo Pericles. Yeah. And not only Pericles, because he was the adopted son of Pericles, but also his lineage. I mean, he came from a very distinguished Athenian family who one of his ancestors was, uh, you know, kicked out of the, the last tyrant of, of Athens. So, yeah, he had a big, uh, you know, comparisons uh, to, to, to stand up to in terms of who came before him. So, yeah, there might be some interesting psychological issues there. In terms of practical mistakes, um, you know, that is a very good question. I think the pra- the, the the first of a series of practical mistakes, but probably the turning point was when he defected from Athens because he was brought up to, for charges for allegedly having defaced the, the Urme, the, these sacred images, right, statues. Uh, we don't know whether he did it or not uh, or whether it was a plot by his enemies or something. Arguably, the, the thing to, to do would have been, in fact, to go back to Athens and face charges. But, you know, that could have ended up in a pretty dicey circumstances. So, I don't blame him necessarily for, you know, skipping. But what does he do? He goes to Sparta, which is understandable because his family was actually the Athenian representative, diplomatic representative to Sparta. So he had friends there. He had connections. That makes perfect sense. But then he starts very effectively advising the Spartans against the Athenians. Right? That, I think, was his mistake because up to that point, he was simply somebody who was possibly, uh, you know, the target of a, of a political conspiracy, was trying to save his skin, and he, and he sought asylum. Fine. Up to that point, he could have recovered. But once you start advising your, your hosts against your own city and then start rationalizing why you're doing this, then, then now, now you actually... Uh, started down a, a rabbit hole from which you're not going to emerge. And sure enough, it, it doesn't emerge in the, in the end. Uh, it dies tragically, uh, you know, a number of years later. I think uh, he kind of goes out in a blaze of glory in a way as well. Yes. He's a tragic <laughs> hero, but to some anyway. But he, I actually think one of his biggest mistakes, I agree with you, but I'd add to that when he allegedly cheated in the chariot races, oh, yes. the Panathenaic Games. So it seems yeah. to me the Athenians felt that he'd gone, they, they held that against him for many years afterwards. And that was his hubris showing. So they became suspicious of him after that. Uh, and, and the accusation was that he wanted to make himself into a tyrant over over Athens. So I, I, I think that Socrates must have looked at that and thought this is exactly what I was kind of warning him not to do. Yeah. Leads me on to another question. This is a tricky one, Massimo. I don't know. You you might you might have to think about this one a little bit, but you, I think you're in a good position to do it. Do you think in a parallel universe, Alcibiades would have turned out any differently if a Stoic like Epictetus, who focused more on self-discipline, arguably, 
had been his tutor rather than Socrates? What would have happened if he'd had an Epictetus as mm. his tutor? Would, he, would Epictetus have been a, a better mentor for Alcibiades? That is a great question. So let me let me run my parallel universe simulation and 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 come up with an answer. You know. As much as I, of course, have a huge amount of admiration for Epictetus, I don't think so. And here's why. I think it was too late. Uh, so we, you know, in the, the next to the last chapter in the book, it goes into the more general issue of character. What is it? What do we know about it from the point of view of modern science? Does it change? You know, how does it change? Can you, you know, can you do something about it? And the consensus seems to be that... Uh, Character, which is a series of behavioral dispositions, right? So the, 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 if you have a certain uh, uh, character trait, let's say generosity, that just means that other things being equal, you tend to act generously. Uh, you know, not necessarily always, but you have a tendency and so on. Uh, same goes for vices, right? If, you, if you're stingy, then you tend to be stingy uh, most of the times, etc. Now, the... Um, Evidence seems to be that character is formed, part of it is probably innate. So part of it is probably a, a matter of genetics. You know, we just have, just like we have other natural predispositions or lack thereof, like, you know, music, um, for music or for languages or something like that. It's the same goes for pretty much any human behavioral trait. But the part that is not genetic, the, the component that is actually pliable, seems to be largely not completely, but largely set by one's late teens or early 20s, which mean, which makes sense because that's the time when the human brain basically settles down. And uh, after that, you can still do things. You can still, of course, learn. You know, the, a good analogy here is with, with learning a musical instrument or, yeah. or a language. You can definitely do it pretty much at any time in your life. But the more you wait, the more difficult it is and the less good you're going to get at it, right? And so I suspect that uh, Alcibiades was already sufficiently set that not even Epictetus would have been able necessarily to to alter things. In some of the central, in the central part of the, of the book, I go through a number of other examples of both success and failures when it comes to either philosophers trying to advise politicians, such as, such as for instance, Plato twice with with uh, uh, the tyrants of Syracuse, Dionysus the first and the second, uh, sorry, Dionysus the first and the second, uh, as well as examples of politicians or statesmen who themselves are, or, are interested in philosophy and seek advice. Obviously, for instance, Marcus Aurelius, uh, Cicero, Cato the Younger, etc. And the pattern that emerges from those examples, I think, is pretty clear. It almost never works when a philosopher comes to an adult or almost adult individual who has had has shown no inclination toward you know virtue and wisdom and tries to teach it. It's all it always ends in either catastrophe or in not, not in a particular good way. By contrast, when uh, when somebody has the internal motivation and seeks advice, or especially early on in life, that's where you see the results. Uh, and, and so the, the general, I think, idea is that if we really want to uh, you know, improve people's characters, we better do it early on. Yeah. 
and, and it's one interesting question of why don't we? <laughs> because we usually don't, right? We, we don't teach moral philosophy, for instance, practical moral philosophy to our kids, and we should. Well, let's open that up because that leads neatly on to what was going to be my, my final question. I was saving to last, but you've started to kind of lead into it already there. Mm-hmm. So the, the concluding question that I wanted to put to you for this episode was how do you, based on the book that you've written and your other research, how, what do you feel we could be doing um, to do a better job of teaching virtue today? Like, how, What can we learn from this? How could we do a better job in general of improving character and teaching virtue? Well, I, I would say that um, we need to start doing it because said, most of the times we actually don't do it yeah. at all. So it's not even a question of doing a better job. It's just to do a job. But it is a, it's a good question. I think there are a couple of things that uh, emerge from both so the, the experience of the Greco-Romans as well as from modern science. For one thing, uh, the Romans were right, the Greco-Romans were right, that the age of reason, which is you know when kids start uh, being able to formulate abstract uh, thoughts and stuff like that, and that happens usually around seven, eight years old or something like that, that's when you, start, you want to start teaching uh, practical philosophy. And we don't. Um, with very few exceptions. One of the really interesting exceptions is in a uh, is illustrated very clearly in a documentary that I saw recently called Young Plato. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw and, it. right. Yeah, and so it's it's set um, in uh, in Belfast in Northern Ireland, and it's about an elementary school principal who starts teaching practical philosophy to his kids to help them deal with you know their day to day challenges and setbacks, and it's fascinating. It's exactly the kind of things that we should be doing. But, of course, we, by and large, don't. Uh, you know, so that's one thing. The other thing is that you know, modern science has actually looked into, into these issue of character. There is uh, one of my favorite books in, in that department is The Character Gap by Christian Miller, who is a psychologist. And he, you know, he's compiled a number of things uh, that work and don't work when it comes to improving our character and our virtue. And it might come as no surprise to, to us who practice ancient philosophy that a lot of these things were actually intuited or, or, or known already by the likes of Seneca, Cicero, and, and so forth. So, for instance, the kind of things that does work, the techniques that work, is adopting role models. Does that mm. sound familiar? Yeah, right? Oh. Uh, this, is, this is what Seneca tells us to do all the time to critically reflect on your actions. In other words, do something like journaling. In other words, writing your own meditations, a la, a la Marcus Aurelius, that yeah. sort of stuff. That works. Uh, purposely avoiding certain situations uh, that you know might be challenging. Epictetus tells you to do that all the time, right? He says, look, the, you're not good enough yet to resist temptation. You, you need to avoid temptation altogether. You need to get to get into into not get into situations that you know are going to be challenging if you're not ready to, yeah. uh, to to be to be to handle that challenge we also know of things that don't work one of the things that don't work perhaps not surprisingly is doing nothing but what by doing nothing what what um, miller meant is like we have this general notion that oh you know you get older and you get wiser no you don't not by default. I mean, you get old and you get crankier. That's true. Um, but not necessarily wiser. Wisdom comes, yes, from experience. You do, you do, it does require experience, but it does, it requires 
mindful, critical evaluations of your experiences. If you don't do that, if you don't, don't engage with your experience, you're not learning crap. So you're just getting old. You're not getting any, any wiser. Another thing that doesn't work is nudging. Uh, you know, the, these techniques that are actually very effective in terms of behavioral modification, but not in terms of character modification. Those two are not the same thing, right? So nudging, you know, an example of nudging is these days uh, uh, a company that wants its employees, for instance, to get into a retirement plan or, or opt in into a healthcare plan. What they do is instead of asking them, do you want this? You need to fill out a, a you know, a form. They automatically enroll their employees and then the employees has to file a form if they want to disengage to, to be unenrolled, right? So it's basically changing the default. And uh, the nudging nudging on that sort works very well in terms of behavior modification. Yes, more people will stay with healthcare or with retirement. But because it doesn't, it's not actually a conscious, reflective, critical decision, it doesn't actually affect your character. It's, you're not getting more virtues. You're just getting, you know, you're lazy and that's why you don't change things. Um, and then the last thing that doesn't work, there's pretty good empirical evidence that doesn't work, is virtue labeling. You know, we, we're told to... to, to go to our kids and tell them that they're brilliant, that they're great, that they're blah, blah, all this sort of stuff, even yeah. when they're patently not. <laughs> well, that turns out now there is enough studies to show that that thing actually doesn't work. It doesn't make people any any better than they were before. Yeah, that makes them intel spidies. Little narcissists or whatever. Um, that's been incredibly insightful, Massimo. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you as always. Thanks very much for, for joining us today. Do you have anything else that you wanted to add before we wrap things up? No, I think the only thing to say is just, you know, guys, keep reading about the Greeks and the Romans because there is a ton of stuff that we can still learn today. And, and thanks for having me, uh, Donnie. It was a very, very much a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. And thank you, everyone, for listening to Stoicism, Philosophy as a Way of Life. Be sure to share the link with your friends. I'm looking forward to next time. But for now, it's goodbye from this episode's guest, Massimo Colucci, and from me, Donald Robertson.